Disadvantaging. Yeah, people. Okay. No, so two two good questions. The first one we already didn't record, but about the rhetor using the psukim as rhetorical devices in the uh, uh, when speaking about matters that are not really a perush of the pasuk. So we know that the Rambam talks about that in the perush of the Mishnayot, and we know that he, that he speaks better than Marin Nebuchim. And I just before the recording went on, I gave an example of that from the perush of the Mishnayot. Everyone can look at via Azenecha. But that doesn't, that's just using, that's about uh, using, uh, using the pasuk as a mnemonic device, basically, uh, for rhetoric, which is okay, but isn't really a perush of the pasuk. It's mainly to uh, spice up the message of the, of the darshan. So the, or to make the, make the uh, darshan's message more, uh, more memorable, uh, you could say. Um, the, uh, the question was that Jordan asked now, uh, so we expanded on that, but everyone should look up that Rambam in the Pirush uh, Mishnayot, everyone who's listening, and uh, check out what he says there about that drasha and how sometimes you could see that it's obvious that the rabbis don't mean that when it's talking about digging a hole to go to the bathroom, it's not talking about putting a stick in your ear not to hear Lashon Hara, but it does kind of sound like that from the language. So therefore, the rabbis use that as a nice way to uh, stick the idea, no pun intended, in your head. The, uh, uh, or maybe pun intended. Um, right. So then the question was, if you uh, if you go with this approach, which the Ralbag really articulates the most explicitly, but the Rambam I was mentioning last time utilizes the idea, its explanation of a few problems that the Mefarshim of the Rambam grapple with. Let's put it that way. Um, I don't remember. I I could be wrong because I you know it could be that he says it some in some place in the Torah the Mishnayot, but I don't remember the Rambam explicitly. Uh, articulating this idea that the Ralbag says here, I just can tell that the Rambam used the idea because it explains in a very, very simple way some of the problems that the Mufarshim of the Mishneh Torah raise uh, on the Rambam. And it's just, it's, it, it makes perfect sense that he used that approach and that's maybe where the Ralbag got it or maybe it's something that they had in their school of thought that the Ralbag was just the first person to really flesh out, as far as I can remember. But the idea that, um, that, uh, that once we have established a perush as the authoritative perush, so now we read the Torah Shebikhtav in light of that perush. We don't have to necessarily rely upon the pilpulim or the process that brought us to the understanding that that was the correct perush. We don't have to invoke that or use the same psukim uh, or sources that they did in determining that it was a correct perush uh, in order to uh, in order to read the Torah Shabbat with the perush, so that's so the question was doesn't that undermine in some way the uh, process of uh, the, at which the um, through which the uh, that perush was arrived because uh, if you arrived at the perush through the um, through these the, these psukim or through this uh, through the arguments so doesn't that mean that uh, so why would we then discard them or set them aside in uh, in explaining the pasuk itself, or in explaining the halacha itself, it seems to uh, it seems to cast uh, aspersions on the validity of the process, right? Because that's that's what you're basically asking. I mean, once you, right? right. right? So, if, so if the yud gimel ikarim are supposed to be the source code of the halachot, right? Um, exactly. No. Right. So the question, right? So it's seemingly, I think, the basic answer to that is that um, that. Uh, there's a process of verification of what, what the good uh, 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 or the you know the uh, uh, 
that Shatorat Nidreshit Bahain, and really that you know the Yudgim of Shatorat Nidreshit Bahain are just according to what well, one opinion. There's actually you know there's a, according to Rabbi Yosi Aglili a lot more, and and the Rambam in in, in Hilchot Talmud Torah when he talks about understanding Torah Shabbal Peh says there that a person that part of Torah Shabbal Peh is understanding the the midot from which the halachot are derived. He doesn't say the Yudil Midot Shatwan Jashbahani see he uses a much broader term to mean the methodology by which the Halachot are derived. So it's not necessarily the 13, could be more than that, could be uh, other ones, but the uh, but the point is that there's a in addition, in other words, there's two steps of Perush. One step of Perush is to have a valid uh, interpretation of the Pasuk that actually is a reading that's a legitimate reading. And then the second step is how do you authenticate that reading or, uh, or uh, demonstrate the validity of that reading? That's a different process than the reading itself. In other words, if the question is, what does uh, or something like that, what is the, you know, is Beit Shammai right that you're only allowed to do Malachot on Yom Tov for the sake of... Um, for the sake of uh, of uh, eating, or is Beit Hillel right that you generalize, you know, to uh, any type of uh, benefit, and and that that's just a, that's just an example. So you can both of those readings of the pasuk are equally tenable readings and equally reasonable readings in and of themselves. So the question is, how do you determine which one I should go with? That that has a process of. Uh, using certain midot and a certain uh, recognized um, um, methods to demonstrate and to buttress one reading over the other. That, that process could involve an extra letter, an extra vav, a rep repetition of a word, uh, the appearance of a term in more than one context, that shows you that it appears here one way, it appears here one way, that shows you the meaning of A and B are the same. You know, all of these processes are technical processes to validate one reading or to legitimize one reading uh, or to give it authority over the other reading, but they aren't part of the Pirush itself. They're external to the Pirush itself. So it's uh, the, the same way that the, uh, in the same way that you could have a formula in mathematics <clears throat> that you use all the time, but proving that that formula is actually valid is a totally different process than using the formula, right? You can have a, you can have a formula that you use all the time, but if I asked you, how do you know that formula works? You might not even know, right? A, a mathematician would probably, will often know, but, you know, an ordinary person might use a, a might use a uh, formula they don't really know the, uh, or, or, a, or a formula in physics or in, in any subject where formulas are used, what led to that being proven as a correct formula is a totally different process than the use of the formula, the validity of the formula itself and the use of the formula once it's demonstrated to be true. So obviously in the case of halakha, we don't have experimental verification or anything like that, or mathematical verification of a, of a formula, but we have a process that, that the, is a, the authoritative process for uh, validating a particular reading of a pasuk. And it's ex external to the um, to the re to that reading it to the reading itself, and that's that's what he's saying. So he's not saying that the process is wrong. He's saying the process deals with something totally different, which is authority of the reading, 
not the substance of the reading. The substance of the reading is that means what Beit Hillel says it means or uh, whatever. Whereas uh, the question of how do we know Beit Hillel versus Beit Shammai, there you have a whole bunch of different um, uh, uh, moves back and forth and reading Sukim to demonstrate which one of their uh, interpretations are correct uh, or valid, I should say, uh, which one of their interpretations are uh, authoritatively accepted as the authoritative one. Let's put it that way. Um, so that, that's a different, it's a different process. So the process is not, it's not that one undermines the other one. It's just that they're two different, pro, two different objectives. The, the process of Chazal, the means of derivation, is that above our pay grade? Is that not our, our business to know? It's a different, it's a different uh, process. So it's like, it's, it's similar. To, that's why I'm using the analogy of, let's say, uh, of, uh, uh, use the analogy of um, of a mathematical formula or of a, a formula in science or a formula in any any kind of a formula. Um, deter- demonstrating that the formula is valid is different than uh, applying the formula to a case. Applying the formula, uh, you could apply the formula your whole life and never know uh, what the process was that showed that it was a correct formula. So that, that's a different art. It's a different area. So that, it's not that it's not a value, but it's a uh, it's a different uh, it, it isn't of the substance of the reading of Tosh Bichtav. It's more of a technical exercise to determine which of the two interpretations or which of multiple interpretations of Tosh Bichtav should be the one that becomes authoritative. It's a totally different uh, since there the, the assumption underlying that is that when two chachamim or multiple chachamim have interpretations of a halacha, that they're all going to be in substance, something intelligent and something valid, which is what the Gemara says uh, very famously. You know, you can, uh, you can be mitaherot asherets. You can use the methodology. And the Ralbach just mentioned it above, right? He mentioned it before, that if you use the, uh, if you use these midot, it says, that you could, you could use uh, all of these different methodologies of uh, to prove anything. Almost, you know, yeah. so uh, maybe you couldn't use Kalvachomer to prove anything, but you could use uh, you could use many of the other methods to prove almost anything. Uh, and so uh, the, the presupposition of using the Midot is that you have intelligent interpretations to begin with. And then the question is, how am I going to decide between Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah and Rabbi Akiva reading a Pasuk of um, or Chachamim versus um, Versus Ben Zoma, whether so they're both reasonable interpretations, right? So the question is, which Interpretation is correct. Is it something that's an eternal remembrance, even during, during the times of Mashiach, because it's a foundational, uh, it's a foundational event, and therefore all future events, even in the future Gula, will not eliminate the remembrance of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, because it will be, it will always be uh, a, a uh, something that we have to recall every day. Or no, because in the in the it's it was just the best example of Malchut Shemaim that we had up till now, but in the future. 
uh, will have the uh, the universal geula. That will be a much more powerful demonstration of Hashem's uh, malchut and geula, and therefore we won't have to mention Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Will be quaint compared to uh, Yimot Hamashiach, and will be uh, you won't have to mention it as the it won't be the uh, example that we use for Kabbalat Ol Malchut Shemaim anymore. Right, the, so so the, you know they, they can argue that as a philosophical question, but then and both of them can have really good philosophical reasons for their positions. But the, at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to determine who is correct, Ben Zomar the Chachamim, in in just based upon the the substance of their interpretations, because the substance of their interpretations, of course, they're both going to be compelling and good. The question is going to be which one becomes the halacha. Can I ask Rabbi? Maybe, I don't want to belabor the point because I know everybody wants to start. Uh, not in a case where there are even two opinions. Even, uh, for example, just came to my head the idea of mea brachot. Um, it's brought, in the, the, I think it's, I don't know where in the Gemara, the idea of like, uh, it's kind of like a, like a play on right? That seems to be like a halacha that was. I don't know if that would be considered nasmachta, but that's uh, yeah. I mean, that's a nasmachta from uh, that's also an only derabanan, obviously. Nobody, it's a deraita. So yeah, it's a nasmachta, and it's definitely. Or another one is the nazir being shloshim yom. How do you know nazir shloshim yom? Because uh, because of a gematria, basically yihyeh, uh, you know, is is thirty. So it means it's thirty. Uh, that's a very nice. That's a that's a. Uh, like an asmachta type of thing, really 30 days is just a unit of time that's meaningful for Nazirut. And, you know, I mean, there's no machloka that I could think of there, but uh, I think everyone agrees on that. But in terms of like uh, certain times, you have yeah, certain asmachtot or uh, things like that to, rem to remember the halachot. That's a different, like ma'ashem al-o'echah is definitely to remember the halacha and also to show that it that the purpose of uh, of saying a lot of brachot is to instill in the person ahavan yirat shamay. So they're connected to the pasuk of ma'ashem elohecha shoel meimach, ma'ashem elohecha shoel meimach as a you know mea, meaning the the idea of mea brachot every day is a constant engagement with brachot, so the person stays in a state of recognition of Hashem as much as possible, like shiviti Hashem lenegditamid. Uh, the Rambam talks about it in, in Hilchot Bachot that you know you should be marbe bebachot atzichot. You know you should have a lot of bachot that are necessary. Meaning, as long as the bachot are halachically acceptable, the person should say lot of bachot because it keeps them, you know, aware of God all the time. So that makes sense with Ma'ashem Elohecha Shoel Meimach. It's talking about being a person who is you know fully possessed of Yirat Shemaim and Avat Hashem and all that. But yeah, it's an asmachta for sure. But when they're dealing with oh. This rabbi says that there's an extra vav, that it means that, you know, uh, if you have a machloket, you need three walls of a sukkah, or you need, uh, at, at, but the, you know, uh, or do you need only, uh, you know, the, the machloket about the, because uh, it says sukkat without a vav, you know, that diminishes the number of walls that you need. So do you need, uh, do you need three walls and the third one can be, uh, uh, can be less. Um, do you need uh, do you need four walls and the fourth one could be less? Um, so you have you can have a machloket like that based upon the number of times it says sukkot a number of times, but couple twice it's with without a vav. So without a vav means diminishing. So that means you're not allowed to have less. So like these kinds of technicalities are because you could have a machloket in terms of what is the nature of the walls around the sukkah. Are the walls around the sukkah to delineate an area? 
or the walls around the sukkah to create a structure. Well, if it's to create a structure, so that's a different parameter than to delineate an area because a delineated area has to be totally enclosed. So then you're gonna have four. If it's, to, if it's to create a structure, three could be defined already as a structure. You don't have, you need to, you don't need to have four. So then you, and, and the fact that the, whichever one is the last one could be diminished a little bit. So if you're starting with three, you can have two and a half and you're starting with four, you can have three and a half. Right, so you can have two different interpretations of the requirement of walls in the sukkah, whether it's related to structure or it's related to de delineating the area, as uh, you know. And then, and then you, uh, and then who's going to prove which one is correct is going to be much more difficult. But you can use the methodology. Therefore, the the Tawasha Balpeh has a methodology for validating one interpretation over the other to to obviate the need or to diminish the need to rely on. Uh, intuition to determine which interpretation should be uh, should be accepted because uh, otherwise you're going to have to argue which one of the Tanaim or Amoraim had a more substantive reading of the Pasuk and that could be extremely difficult to uh, come down either way in terms of a because uh, you could uh, you could spend all day long theorizing and reflecting on the different theories of the Amoraim and Tanaim and Chachamim and not come up with any particular uh, conclusion as to who is right and who's wrong. So it's, it will be hard to establish one as authoritative without some kind of a technical method for, uh, for validating one over the other halachically. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, the other person's idea is not, not substantive. It just means that they, uh, they, they didn't validate it using the tools that are used for doing that. And so therefore uh, one wins over the other. Although, although usually they match head to head and both have their own uh, have their own arguments to substantiate their points, and then it's a matter of you know who can win the uh, who can win uh, in terms of the consensus. But that's uh, that's the art of the demonstration of the truth of the of the interpretation, or the I don't want to say the truth. The art of the demonstration of the authoritative, uh, which one should be authoritatively accepted, is different than the substance of the of the idea itself. That's why I keep mentioning. Um, that, uh, you know, you can look at a, two different opinions of the Tanaim and they have a reasoning behind them that is in and of itself a reasoning that's valid. It's just a question of which one is going to be accepted in practice. Okay, and that's why they say in many places in the Gemara that these methods of Midot really could prove almost anything. So you have to demonstrate uh, one way or another uh, if your if your idea to begin with is flawed, you could also bring a million uh, psukim and, and extra letters to try to uh, to try to uh, back it up, but it's not going to be accepted because it's not a good idea. That's what it means. Meaning, if you're starting with something that's a sheretz already, you know you, the matter, the fact that you show that it, there's a gzera shavah and there's an extra vav and there's a missing a vav and there's a you know and there's a repetition and all that. And all the other methods is not going to convince anybody to accept your interpretation because it's a sheretz to begin with. You know, it's your mitzahir to sheretz. It's not going to be good. But if you if you start with a real idea, so then to show that it's the one that should be accepted, that's a different process. Okay. Very good. Does it make any sense? I hope. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's see let's see if uh, if. Um, what, so now he gets into his what he calls the mikomot, which is very interesting. There's a lot of discussion why he calls it mikomot because mikomot means uh, areas or, uh, you know, means um, he's using the word makom in a, in, a, in a weird way. But I mentioned that his, his terminology is often strange. 
Um, the Aristotle also has a book about arguments and principles of arguments called the topics and topica, it means also locations. So it's interesting if he took it from there, he kind of translated from the Greek uh, concept to, uh, to Hebrew and used the word mikomot, but it means um, we're going to see what he means. A makom is something that orients things that are within it in a, you know, in a certain form. And, uh, or it's a, it's a condition for them to, uh, to exist, uh, the makom that it, you know, that it takes up, the space that it takes up. And in the same way, he's saying certain conditions or principles that are presupposed in the reading of the Torah. Now, what I find fascinating about the way he does this is that he's going to show you, and I think this might help illuminate for you, especially Jordan, that was asking the question about validity of, a, about the substantive validity of an idea versus the authentication, the authoritative authentication of an idea. That I think it'll become clear what it means, uh, the substantive validation of an idea from what he says now, because he's going to show you that uh, a perush of a pasuk can't be about how many vabs or how many repetitions of the word or how many, uh, or, or or anything like that in and of itself. It has to be a reading of the term. And so at the end of the day, we want to make sure that whatever perush of Torah Shebikhtav we have, is an actual reading of Torah Shebikhtav that illuminates the text. How we decided that was the authoritative this, uh, perush is a different story, is a different question, right? And that's not what he's going to deal with. That's for the Chachmei Talmud to, to deal with. Now he says, I think you guys will find this super interesting. That's why one of the reasons I wanted to do this. So what's the first condition? Hamakomarishon. Now you'll notice that some of his ideas are actually definitely part of the Yud Gimel Midot which kind of suggests that maybe he, um, maybe some of them are also substantive and not just uh, authoritative principles. So he says the Torah will take the particular in place of the general. Okay, in other words, you have to when you're reading Tosha B'chitav, you have to wonder if what you're reading. Is the, to, is the category or an example, right? Like I was saying before, the way Beit Shammai, Beit Hillel read, uh, you can argue it's a, that is the totality of what is permitted or it's an example of what's permitted, right? So he says, there are two types of a particular standing in for a general. You can learn from a particular to the general. In other words, what that means is that the individual case is an exemplar. It exemplifies a general rule, but it's just, it is presented in a particular case. But the particular case, just like an individual, like the famous Socrates, you know, man is mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, right? The very famous, uh, the most famous, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, of the sacri- you know the uh, the logical uh, forms of the syllogism that they call it right so in that case an individual man and the generality of man is this is you know the individual man is 100% man even though he's an example an illustration of the general man so in the same way he says like this like this, the Torah tells you you cannot plow with an ox and a donkey together First of all, 
Chamor is not about a donkey. It's about a non-kosher animal. Shor is not about an ox. It's about a kosher animal, right? So that's already saying the individual examples are really of a category. They're not of the individual itself. They're a category. And it mentions plowing. Really, plowing is just one example of the general category of melachot that animals can participate in together. You read Masachet Kilaim, you learned about there in the eighth parak. You can determine when to generalize from a particular and when to not from the nature of the mitzvah and the words. You will see from our use of this principle in every place. For example, in this case, the mitzvah requires that it applied to all animals. Here it doesn't make any sense to say that there's some that only a donkey and an ox would be included. It makes sense to say that it's talking about combining kosher and non-kosher animals. It used an example of a kosher, an example of a non-kosher, and an example of a melacha. But the example, the particular is just that, a particular to illustrate a general category. So that's the very first principle he says, that you have to always look at every mitzvah and ask, is this a is this the totality of the mitzvah or is this a particular standing in for a general, okay? Now, the reason why that's the most fundamental of all is because the most fundamental relationship between a general concept and a particular is when the particular is a manifestation of the general concept or an exemplification of the general concept. And you learn the general from the particular. That's the most basic example. But where the totality, in other words, charisha, plowing is a melacha, 100%. It's no less a melacha than the other melachot that would be derived from, the, from its example. It's, it's just an example of, it's 100% melacha. Like, so if you use the syllogism, you'd say all melachot are prohibited for these animals to do together. Charisha is a melacha, therefore charisha is prohibited. Anything you say about all melacha, you would also say about charisha, right? So that's, that's the idea of a particular and a general. Anything you would say about the general category would apply to the particular example of the category, okay? Uh, anything you would say about kosher animals in general would apply to the ox. Anything you would say about non-kosher would apply to the chamor. So it's just a, a, a concretization of a category. Okay, That's the first example. And really the most basic example in thinking is going from the particular to the general, obviously. The, you know, the apple falling is an example of a body falling, you know, being pulled by gravity towards the Earth's surface. So says Newton. And then he realizes that it's actually not just that, but it's actually an example of the attraction of bodies in general, not just gravitational, not just on the surface of the earth, but that which explains universal gravitation and all bodies attracted to one another and so on and so forth. So you're really generalizing from the particular to the broadest conception when you look at that Apple case of Newton. Okay, now. What's the second example? Another idea is where not that the substance is an example or that the substance is really standing in for uh, a general principle, 
Okay, and now a lot of these things, one day, one day, if we have the good fortune of learning Sefer um, Ahigayon and we learn logic together, some of these ideas will make more sense, uh, even more sense, hopefully, than they do now, because we'll get to see the, uh, we'll get to understand the logical ideas here that he's using. One day we'll get to that. But in the meantime, so the, because um, this is very much an application of a lot of logical ideas that you would learn when you learn logic. So in this case, it's not that the, Okay, he gives examples of halachot of korbanot. So for some people that could be a little bit distracting, but it's not that important that he's just trying to use an example that he probably thought of as the best um standalone example of it. But basically you have different classifications of korbanot, such as uh, kodashim kalim, the light kodashim and the and the kodashim, uh, koche kodashim and kodashim kalim. The example, actually the most strict one is the korban todah probably. Um, and that you only have a day and a night, meaning if you bring a korban todah, you have that day and the following night to uh, eat the korban. After that, you have to burn the rest. So the interesting thing is that in terms of Kodeshim Kalim in general, you have two days to eat them. You have, if you bring a, uh, a Korban Shlamim on Monday, you have Monday, Monday night, and Tuesday to eat it. A Korban Toda is different. You have only one day and a night. So if you brought it on Monday, you have only Monday and Monday night to eat it, and you don't have it past that. So it mentions two kinds of Kodeshim Kalim, it gives us the timing of them. It gives us the korban todan. It gives us the other uh, kodeshim kalim. But it never mentions in the Torah what is the time frame for kodeshim kodeshim. Such as the chatat, asham, and so on that are eaten by the kohanim and they have to be eaten actually in the prem, on the premises of the Beit HaMikdash. The reason why the Torah doesn't mention it is because they are at the very least as... Um, Worthy is having this rule of a one-day eating rule as the korban toda, if not more so. He says the philosoph Aristotle also mentioned this kind of a principle in his discussion of the mikomot of the conditions of rhetoric. In other words, when a per, if you use an example. That is, uh, if a korban toda, it's just kind of like a kalvachomer example, almost. Um, he's almost like a kalvachomer, even though he doesn't say that. But meaning, if a korban toda, which is kodeshim kalim, has only a one-day time limit for eating, then certainly it makes sense that kodeshe kodeshim, that it doesn't tell us how many days we have to eat it, would be no more than the korban toda, which is a more lenient korban, that anybody could eat it, and they can eat it at home with their whole family and all that. So certainly a kohanim that have to eat a korban in the Beit HaMikdash, and it's restricted to the uh, male kohanim, and all and so on, is only going to be a one-day korban. So he says that's an example where the Torah gives you an example, right? So think about the difference. It's important to see the difference, okay? When it, when the Torah says, uh, it says, uh, 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 the donkey, or the Torah says the, the ox, or the Torah describes the plowing. Plowing is the melacha. It's just an example. It is melacha. It's no less melacha than any other melacha, right? A, a, a donkey is no less a non-kosher animal than any other non-kosher animal. It is a non-kosher animal. It is a material example of a non-kosher animal. Same with an ox being of a kosher animal. Now take a look at this example. We're not saying that a korban chatat, which is kodeshim, 
is actually the same thing as a korban todah. We're not saying that. We're not saying that substantively they're the same, that there's one category that embraces both of them. We're saying that if an idea or a principle applies in a context that is more lenient, and we have a context that is more stringent and we don't know what the law should be in that case, it stands to reason that the more stringent, this more stringent uh, case should be no less than the more lenient case. So we're, we are extracting a principle. We are generalizing from the Korban Toda, not because the Korban Toda is the same thing as Koche Kodeshim. They're actually in different categories, but because an idea that applies to the Korban Toda can't be any more lenient than an idea that, uh, I'm sorry, any more strict rather than an idea that would apply to Koche Kodeshim. So that's a different way of learning from the particular. So in other words, you're learning from the mitzvah pratit to other mitzvot. You're learning a din kolela mitzvah hahi asher So once you have that principle, any other case where that principle is applicable, you generalize the principle. You're not generalizing korban toda, that korban toda is the example of all korbanot because it's not the example of all korbanot because there's many other there's other types of korbanot and it's not in the same category as the other korbanot. You're not generalizing korban toda and saying, oh, the reason why kodesh kodeshim should have a one day time limit is because they are korban toda or because korban toda is the same as them. You're not saying that. You're just saying that a principle or a din that applies to korban toda makes sense that there would be no less of a restriction for Koche Kodeshim. So you're generalizing from one to the other. It's kind of like Kalvachomer uh, in that sense. So it's a generalization, but a different kind of generalization because you're not generalizing Koban Toda like you did with donkey or ox and said, really, donkey is all non-kosher animals. Really, ox is all kosher animals. Really, Harisha is all Malacha. You're not saying that in the case of Korban Toda. You're not saying really Korban Toda is all Korbanot. You're not saying that. Actually, it's not true. Not all Korbanot have that rule. What you're saying is the rule in the Korban can be generalized to all cases of stricter Korbanot and apply it even in a situation where it isn't mentioned. Okay, so it's also a type of a generalization, but not a generalization of the entity of the Korban Toda, a generalization of the principle to other cases where it applies, an extension of the principle, okay? So that's the first thing he says in reading. And I think it's the first thing that in terms of, uh, in terms of um, any thinking is going from the particular to the general. You can generalize an and uh, the, the substance or you can generalize the principle, okay? That's, that's the first thing. So these are very helpful tools when we read. Now he says, now, this again is very reminiscent, but it's not the same thing as the idea of Zerashava. Okay, very similar. You have a term or a statement in one category, in one context that is Satum. It's not explained. And in another case, it's explained. Some of the cases of Zerah Shavah are very close to this, right? Sometimes when the Gemara will, will make Zerah Shavah, like the one that I always think of is, you know, when it says about the fruits of the fourth, um, the fourth year, after the Orla, the fourth year, right? Neto it says, Yekodesh Hilulim, right? 
So and they make a gzera shavah, the kodesh of the uh, of Masir Sheni, that it has to be brought to Yerushalayim and eaten, and the Kodesh of the uh, of the fourth year fruits after the Ola year, the fourth year fruit also, it says Kodesh, but it doesn't explain what kind of Kodesh we learn from one to the other, right? So he's saying, he gives a different example, though he says, it says, uh, uh, says he says, uh, for example, the Torah tells you that if you if you commit a sin, you violate one of the mitzvot you're not supposed to do, you bring korban chatat, or you bring what's called an asham talui if you're not sure you violated the commandment. But the Torah doesn't tell you which kind of sins you have to bring a korban chatat. Is it every single kind of sin? It doesn't say. It says a person who does achat mikol mitzvot Hashem asena. So that would sound like if you did even the slightest uh, sin, you would have to bring a korban chatat. Very expensive sinning. If you look at Parashat Shalach Lecha, that's where it again reiterates korbanot for when the community sins or when the individual sins. But it gives different korbanot in Parashat Shalach Lecha. Right? It's, it's different korbanot there. So it says, over there... It sounds like exactly the same, right? Over there in Parashat Shalach Lecha, it says, uh, if the community sins, meaning if the Bet Din, if the community as a whole makes an error, right? Just like it says in Parashat Vayikra. And you also see that over there in Parashat Shalach Lecha, it mentions bringing a bull, just like it mentioned in Parashat Vayikra. Ela Shosif Sham Sair. The difference is that over in Parashat Shalach Lechad adds an additional korban. This is what all of Masechet Horayot is about, by the way, or the beginning of it, at least. The Masechet Horayot is about this, right? In the book of Vaikra, an individual brings, if they do a sin, a female goat or a female sheep in uh, in the uh, in Shlach Lecha, it mentions only a goat. It doesn't mention a sheep, right? So there were so meaning. Even though the context sound exactly the same, because in Shlach Lecha it brings it's talking about bringing korbanot either communally or individually for sins. The korbanot are a little different because in Shlach Lecha it mentions a bull and a, and a, a goat, and for the individual it mentions uh, just a male goat. I'm sorry, just a female goat. And in the case of uh, uh, Vaikra, it mentions a female goat or a sheep, right? It's a little bit different. So we're going to assume then that the category of mitzvot that are being discussed in both cases are similar, right? It's the same general category. The one in Shalach Lecha is, is referring to a mitzvah that is weighted against all other mitzvot, which is And the ones in Vaikra are not the ones that all the other mitzvot are dependent upon. Now look at how carefully you read there, but actually, you know, the Ramban also talks about that. Right. In the case of Parashat Shalach Lecha, it says, 
את כל מצוות, את כל המצוות האלה. That a person who violates all of the mitzvot brings a korban, but in Parashat Vayikra it says, אחת מכל מצוות השם, or one of the מצוות of השם, right? ואפשר שנאמר שיהיה אומרו את כל מצוות האלה, שאם שגגו בכולן יביאו פר וסעיר. שהרי נתחיל ממה שנאמר בפרשת ויקרא, שיביאו פר כל אחת ואחת, על כל אחת מהמצוות ששגגו בהן. It can't be that in שלח לך, it literally means that the person violated every מצווה, and then has to bring only one קורבן, because if he violated every מצווה, he should have to bring uh, 365 קורבנות, uh, or whatever, for every מצווה that he violated. Why would he have to bring two קורבנות for all those violations, right? וכאשר התיישב זה, once we've established this, יתבאר שכמו שהפרט הנזכר בפרשת שלח לך יהיה במה שחייב בין אדונו כרת, כמו שנתבאר שם באומרו, והנפש אשר תעשה ביד אומה, יקרת תקרת הנפש היא עוונה בה, אף מה שנזכר בפרשת ויקרא, יהיה מה שחייב בין אדונו כרת, כמו שיתבאר זה בהוריות או בקטרות. So now we, what he just basically said is like this, that you have over in two cases, you have two cases that are missing some illumination, but are obviously related to each other. They're related to each other. So in Parashat, in Parashat Shlach Lecha, it mentions that you, did, you violated all the mitzvot of Hashem. In the case of Vayikra, it just mentions Achat Mikol Mitzvot Hashem. He says, but we're still going to assume that they're in the same general category. Why? Because they have similar features. In both cases, it talks about a communal sin, bringing a bull. In both cases, it talks about an individual sin, bringing a female goat. The difference is in Shlach Lecha, it mentions only a female goat, not a sheep, for an individual. And it mentions Par Visair, a, a bull and a goat for the uh, Bet Din instead of just a bull. But really, they're obviously dealing somehow in the same category. So the question is, what is the difference between kol mitzvot Hashem and achat mi mitzvot Hashem, right? Achat mi kol mitzvot Hashem. So he says, kol mitzvot Hashem means the mitzvah, which is the fundamental one that all the other mitzvot are dependent upon. It doesn't mean literally quantitatively kol mitzvot Hashem. It means something that embodies the totality of the mitzvot Hashem, which is avodah zorah. And then, so what is Vayikra left with? He doesn't just discard that and say, yeah, and in Vayikra, it's talking about any mitzvah that you violate. He doesn't say that. He says that from the fact that it mentions there, karet, it mentions that, that it's, uh, that, uh, that it's talking about something that you will be cut off for. So therefore, all the mitzvot that you bring a korban chatat are things that you would have to bring a, uh, are things that, uh, are, that involve karet. Right? All mitzvot that are involve karet, if you violate them, you bring a korban chatat. So what he's saying is, from the example, in Shla, we, don't, we wouldn't know from Vayikra which ones of the mitzvot are the ones that you bring a korban chatat. But from the fact that we look over in the case of Shlach Lechan, you see that for, for avodah zarah, for a, for a violation that is, that undermines the totality of Torah, you bring korbanot of parvesayir, and it mentions that you have karet over there, we can assume that over here it means mitzvot also that involve karet, just not as fundamental as avodah zorah. Just not as fundamental. They're still fundamental because if you're getting karet, that means that they are mitzvot, that uh, the violation of which cuts you off from the Jewish people. That's fundamental in terms of your, in, your membership in the Jewish people. Not as fundamental as avodah zorah because it's not necessarily a violation that undermines the whole essence of the Torah in the same way. But that's the, he's trying to show you that he, he took the case of Shlach Lecha. He, he saw what was particular and general in that case. In other words, what was particular in that case was that it's only Avodah Zorah. What was general was that it's something that involves Karet. And he said, what of that 
can shed light on what it's talking about in the book of Aikra, the part of Karet, the part that says Karet, because it says, Achat mikol mitzvot Hashem, one of the mitzvot of Hashem, meaning of the mitzvot of Hashem, then in Parshat Shalach Lecha, gives you, uh, you know, requires you to bring a korban. Achat mikol mitzvot Hashem is what requires you in Parshat Vayikra to bring a korban. So it's very interesting how he does that, because he basically makes it that Vayikra depends upon Bamidbar to give you the full picture, right? You're learning from one pasuk to the other, from one mitzvah outlined in the Torah to the other one. But the way that he does it is by n- noticing that in one case it's kol mitzvot kol et kol mitzvot in one it's achat mikol mitzvot but which category of mitzvot? It's the category of mitzvot that involve karet. Okay, within the category of mitzvot that involve karet, there's avodah zarah, which is even more fundamental because it undermines the totality of the Torah, as opposed to other mitzvot that are, uh, that disconnect you from the Jewish people and are very severe, but are not at the level of Avodah Zorah, undermining the entirety and totality of the uh, of the system of Torah. So he shows you how basically he's using, uh, and that's what he means, a way of pirush is to look at, uh, if we have a statement like, Achat mikol mitzvot Hashem, and we don't know what it means, we look at another place where kol mitzvot Hashem, or kol mitzvot ele that it is explained and is explained in a way that seems very similar. The context is very similar to the context that we're looking at and what we're able to derive, what similarities and differences there are between the two cases, that between the two contexts, that allows us to explain one over the other. Now, would he have been able to be as certain of his interpretation without Torah Shabbat telling him that kol mitzvot Hashem is refer- referring to avodah zorah? I'm not necessarily sure. But what he's showing you is that that interpretation uh, can be read in the text. It's not something that is, you know, is uh, difficult to see because it says kol mitzvot Hashem. It doesn't say, in fact, the Ramban, uh, Ramban wants to say that it means somebody who completely abandoned the Torah altogether, that the Pshuto Shel Mikra is that it means somebody who abandoned the Torah altogether. That's why it says a person who violated kol mitzvot Hashem. But the Torah Shebal Peh says that it means somebody who worshipped Avodah Zorah, which is essentially the same thing. I mean, uh, just, uh, you know, the, the same concept. But that's that's another way of, of, in, of Pirush. Another way of Pirush is taking an idea that is clarified in one context, applying it to another context. Now, that's different, different than, uh, than what we saw before, because before we're talking about a case where it doesn't say at all the timeline for in the Beit HaMikdash. It doesn't say how long you have to eat them. It's mentioned in the Korban Todah one day, and we say, well, it can't be any worse than a Korban Todah, which is Kodashim Kalim. can't be any worse. So we're going to apply that rule to the case of Kodashim Kalim. That's not an explanation of Kodashim Kodashim. That's just saying that procedurally, it makes sense that if the case of, of Korban Todah is one day, then the case of other Kodashim Kodashim or of Kodashim Kodashim should not be any less than that, right? That's a procedural, uh, that's a deen. Here we're talking about a perush. We're talking about how do you understand what mitzvot Hashem mean in these two contexts, okay? Does it mean any mitzvah? That's one possibility, right? Does it mean all the mitzvot literally means all the mitzvot? That would be a possibility. So he's showing you that we don't say that. We say kol mitzvot Hashem is referring to avodah zorah and mitzvot Hashem means the mitzvot that are uh, karet bearing mitzvot. And we interpret the term mitzvot Hashem based upon shalach lecha. Okay, that's that's what he's showing you. You're able to do in terms of interpretation.
And then you can read these psukim, you can look at these halachot as emerging from the psukim, from a reading of the pasuk that understands what kol mitzvot Hashem means. What or kol mitzvot Hashem means, you know? So that's that's his, that's the second principle. What do you think of that? Makes us want to study Sefer Yeah, I mean, this is. We eventually, hopefully, we'll get to that one day. But um, in terms of uh, in terms of seeing how he's trying to show you that internally in the text itself, without any kind of a pill-pull process, you can try to determine what the meaning of phrases and terms are in the, con- in, you know, in the Torah by comparing different cases and seeing how kol mitzvot Hashem is used in one, uh, or kol mitzvot ele is used in one category that is obviously similar to the category in Vayikra, and then see how they explain, they illuminate each other. That's... Um, that's a, a method of pirush, and then the, and just to do the third one before we run out of time. Okay, this is probably even the most the most one of the most common ones he uses. That the definition of a term has a meaning. So meaning. It says people have to register for the korban pesach. He says, you can't, the word se means that the animal is alive because it doesn't say the word basar, it says the word se. Right? Se means a sheep or the goat, right? So obviously, the, the term se means the living animal. So he's saying to you, that's an example where the halacha emerges from the meaning of a word, just from the definition of a word. You don't need a drasha or a complicated acrobatics to realize that when it says you have to register on the se, it means, well, it's still alive before the, before the korban is offered, before the animal's killed. If it said that you had to register tachosu ala basar, so that would mean that you had to register for the meat, for eating the meat. But the fact that it says ala se means that it's still alive. Okay, so he's showing you. So that's different than the previous because why? Because it's not a generalization from something else. It's not using another example or context to illuminate the first context that we're not sure of. You read Book of Vayikra and you say, I don't know which mitzvot I'm supposed to bring a korban for. How am I supposed to know? You look over at Shalach Lecha, you realize that there it's talking about Avodah Zorah, Avodah Zorah as the king of karet bearing sins. Okay. The most fundamental of fundamental of karet bearing sins, and you realize, oh, then in Vayikra it's talking also about a karet bearing sins, just not as fundamental as Avodah Zarah. Okay, I can learn it. I need another context to shed light on my context right now. That's different than the term itself. I don't need any other context. The word se means a living animal. You don't call it steak a se. You don't call a steak a cow. The steak is uh, is meat, right? So the fact that it says se means the term itself. He's trying to show you that because he's saying whatever technical mechanisms they might use to prove what the meaning of the word is, don't focus on that so much when the term itself has a meaning. The term itself has that meaning, right? So that's, that's the simplest. That's the simplest, right? You don't have to, gen- it's not a matter of generalization or even of applying an idea from one context to another. It's, a, uh, it's just intrinsic to the term. These principles are not mutually exclusive. I mean, they can both apply at the same time. Yeah, you could use a mo- multiple ones. 
can yeah. we can derive from the word said not only that it's living, but we can also contextualize another place in Torah that phrase is used and then something separate. Um, I mean, the would he always say he? I, the assumption is that whenever it says an animal and it refers to the animal, it means the animal is alive. It's not talking about the flesh of the animal. It's a different term, right? That's yeah, what using as, 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 as an example, meaning uh, from a word we can we can. We can exclude what it doesn't mean just from the specific word that's used, like the Makomash Lishi. And we right. can also use it, uh, compare it, you know, juxtapose it to other places in the Torah where similar phraseology is used. I guess if it's, you know, in every context, you have to, you have to, to make sure that in the context, it's, it makes sense. But it seems so. I mean, all the ideas he's saying here, it's interesting, he, he uses a lot of like remote examples like the Korbanot and everything is a really complicated example, but it actually, it's a really good example of the Korbanot there because it's an example where there are two parallel, if you read the, you, I don't know if you've ever paid attention that much because a lot of people, they don't pay that much attention to the Korbanot passages, but if you read the Korbanot passages in Vayikra and then you read in Shalach Lecha, it sounds very similar, but they're saying dip, totally different Korbanot to bring. And the only difference is one says Kol Mitzvot Hashem and one doesn't. So he's showing you to apply from one to the other to that one illuminates the other one. It's an elaborate example, but if you look at the text, you'll see it's a very compelling example because you really don't have anything to go on and by what kind of mitzvot it's talking about. And even in Shlach Lecha, you have to uh, you have to determine that it means Avodazwa because it says Kol Mitzvot Hashem, and he's saying it doesn't make sense, or Kol Mitzvot and something that, that is a karet bearing Kol Mitzvot so he's saying it must mean some mitzvah that's a totality of all the mitzvot. The way that he's showing you how to compare two passages, you don't have that many examples of parallel texts where it's clear that, they're, um, that they share some heading, but they're, they're sort of like running parallel to each other and they're not saying the same thing. Um, that's one example. The other example is intrinsic to the word. And then the, the fourth one, I, I want to mention it, even though we're running late, but I just think that it's important to do this one because it's one that is so, he even says, it's like one of the most common ones, I think he says. This is so interesting. He says, the assumption should always be that when the Torah mentions an action, it means to do it in the most normal way and in the most effective way. What is it? The most complete way. Mashal. What's an example of what I mean by murgal, the common way? It says if an animal falls into a pit, right? This is in Barashat Mishpati. Okay? It has to fall in the normal way of falling, right? Meaning they took the term to mean, um, meaning that it has to be um, in, a, in a manner which is uh, that it fell in the way that it doesn't seem to be, um, that is the normal way that you would fall into a pit and therefore the, the owner of the pit is going to be liable, okay? He's not, he doesn't go into what that means and we're not going to go into what that means either, but the point is that he's saying that the rabbis say, because it says nafal. So when it says the term nafal, it means in the normal way of falling into a pit. There was no other extraneous circumstances involved in the falling into a pit and so on, but he fell the way that a person, that, that an animal falls into a pit, okay? Or for example, the fact that many mitzvot have to be done during the day. This one's a little bit 
this is really such a broad application of this principle. The fact that so many things have to be done during the day. Because normal, most activities happen in daytime. And they're also better during the daytime, meaning they'll be more complete. Let's say it's a, it, whatever activity it is, people are more attentive, people are more engaged, people are more focused. It's more of a time of communal gathering. Whatever, whatever the reason is, it's going to be more shalem if it's done during the daytime. So therefore, the, he's saying that you should operate with the, that with the assumption that whatever mitzvah is given, it's usually a daytime mitzvah. Most, unless it says otherwise, it's a daytime mitzvah. And he also says, It always says you should do everything with the yad yamin. All the avodah of the, of the Beta Mikdash. Many things have to be done with the right hand. He says, Because most people are righties, right? It's the more common way to do it. And it's the more complete way to do it. Now, obviously, it's not talking about a lefty. That's all other thing. But meaning for most people, using the right hand is more effective and more common. So therefore, it's going to be done with the right hand. So, so many halachot that it says it's to be done with the right hand. He's telling you that the reason why they assumed it had to be done with the right hand is simply because that is the standard hand to use. It's the normal hand to use, and it's the most effective hand to use. Okay? So, the, so the, he gives that for daytime. That's the reason for daytime for most mitzvot. That's the reason for right hand. Okay? Now he says, Ve'ulam, mashal inyan He says, an example of where we want the substance of the mitzvah, not just the, the, the implementation of the mitzvah should be more complete, but the inyan of the mitzvah should be more complete. What does it mean? The fact that the rabbi said that the tefillin shal yad should go facing the heart on the upper part of the arm or that the tefillin of the head should be above the, in the brain area. Because the idea is to put your mind on the content that's in the tefillin. So you want to emphasize the brain of the person and the heart of the person. Okay? So meaning that's why they chose, that's why they interpret it that way. When I get to that parasha, I'm going to explain to you how they could tell that you shouldn't put the tefillin actually between your eyes or on your hand. Once I demonstrate to you that the word yad there can't mean the palm of the hand, and the word between the eyes doesn't mean right here between the eyes, so then it makes sense that we should do it in the place that is ideal for the theme of the mitzvah, right? Which is, uh, they says first of all that that means that tefillin should be on the upper part of the arm. Meaning, he says that once that the the assumption should be that we want to do the mitzvah in a way that expresses the idea of the mitzvah the most completely, not just that we want to, uh, not just that it should be the. Uh, that it's the most natural way to do it. So in the beginning, it was talking about, we assume that things are being done in the most natural and effective ways, practically, but also we assume that the mitzvah should be done in the way that expresses the idea and the theme behind the mitzvah in the most complete way, which in the case of tefillin is like, I'll show you that benenecha doesn't actually mean here, and I'll show you that yad doesn't actually mean on the palm of the hand. But then where should it very, Isn't that very subjective, Rabbi? What? Isn't that very subjective, though? I mean, to, to understand the mitzvah to be um, 
understand it in, in a way of what the, the meaning behind it is. But what if, I mean, Tefillin is a pretty obvious example. But what if uh, right. someone were to argue that, no, that there's no connection between the Tefillin and the Moach. Right. Right, so he definitely uses an easy example here because he's using an example where pretty much everybody agrees and understands it's almost self-evident what the meaning of the mitzvah is, so it's easy to get away with it here. In his pirush, a lot of times, I agree with you, in his pirush, a lot of times, he'll be like, oh, well, obviously, this is the halakha here because the meaning of the mitzvah is such and such based on his own interpretation of the reason of the mitzvah. So it can be... Now, he could say to you, well, actually, that fact that that halakha is such and such substantiates my interpretation of the reason of the behind the mitzvah it's kind of um self-affirming in that sense meaning he could say well this halacha is this way because the reason of the mitzvah is this how do i know the reason of the mitzvah is this because the halacha is that way so it shows that it fits with in other words he'll use that as corroborate he could use that as corroborating evidence of his interpretation of the tamha mitzvah he'll say it fits perfectly with the tamha mitzvah that i'm giving that uh, such and such should be the halacha Right. So, so you're right that sometimes he'll use it in ways that you might say, well, wait a second, what if I don't agree with that interpretation of the reason behind the mitzvah? So then how does it work now? Right. But that's not going to bother him because he feels that he knows what the, uh, that he has a good handle on that. Whereas, uh, and he'll, he'll actually use that halakha as a, uh, he, what ended up, what ends up being a corroborating source he'll say is really the, it's because it, he'll say that, why is it a corroborating source for my reason? Because the whole, the, because it makes sense that the halacha would be such and such if, if the reason were what I'm saying it is, right? So yeah, in tefillin, in the case of tefillin, it's a, uh, it's easy. It's, he gave himself an easy example, but he wants to illustrate things with, I think he's trying to pick examples that uh, anybody can, you know, that will, will resonate simply to, to establish the, the point in, in, in the application of it could sometimes be messy. That's for sure. Right. And you'll see, I mean, if you learn the Ralbag and many times you'll be like, okay, you know, he's, he uses it. He uses it a lot. He uses it a lot when he explains the mitzvah. Well, this makes sense that it should be this way because this is the reason for the mitzvah according to his understanding. But these, these four, so we have five more to go, but th these four, I think are, uh, are, uh, very, very, uh, there, there's a couple that are really fundamental uh, further on, but I think these give us a good, a, a good sense of a method of Pirush of Torah Shebikhtav that is based on um, understanding the text and reading the text can, with a, with, uh, you know, illuminated by the principles of Torah Shebalpeh instead of reading it in a way that is forcing the principles of Torah Shebalpeh onto the text. But being able, once you have the idea, to see it as a reading of Torah Shabbat when you read Shorvah Hamor, you read it as uh, uh, kosher animal, non-kosher animal doing melacha. You don't have to read it as the particular only. When you see a principle articulated in the Torah, you know that it doesn't necessarily mean that it's restricted only to the case in which it's expressed. Sometimes it could be legitimately extended, expanded, generalized to other cases. That's not doing violence to the text. That's just reading the text intelligently and, and recognizing that an idea could be expressed in only one case and be uh, and logically and reasonably be uh, uh, be relevant to other cases. Um, the same is true with the, the bigger example that he spends a lot of time on in terms of the korbanot. That because an, because certain ideas are clarified in a parallel case, we can then we can use those ideas to shed light on 
a case where things are not clarified as much. And, uh, and, and that way we're, we are reading, the, we're not really forcing an interpretation on the text, but we're seeing in the text, the ideas of the Torah when it says kol mitzvot Hashem, it means avodah zorah. When it says mitzvot Hashem and vaykra, it means mitzvot Hashem that are almost as fundamental or as the, as the ones in shlach lecha, but not quite. In other words, they're fundamental in the sense that they're isurei karet, but not, not, not on the level of avodah zorah clarifies it, or the definition of a term like se, that we're reading that term in its literal sense, it has certain implications. Or when the Torah gives a mitzvah, that we assume that it be done in the most natural, or that it, it's right, that the actions that are described should be done in the most natural and effective ways, which means daytime with the right hand, or in a manner that best expresses what the theme of the mitzvah is, that's the standard. So what he's trying to show you is you don't need some kind of acrobatics or intellectual gymnastics to show you that things should be done with the right hand, right? It's just, it makes sense that things should be done with the right hand. The chachamim might bring drashot uh, to substantiate that things should be done with the right hand, but at the end of the day, it's almost self-evident that if you want things to be done in the most effective and natural way, you choose the right hand because most people are righties. Right, and it's and you choose the daytime as the time where most activities would be done because that's the most natural time for people to do activities that are you know meaningful and that that involve their uh, you know their complete focus and or that involve communal uh, communal activities and so on. The most natural time is during the day, so it, it doesn't require great gym, intellectual gymnastics to see that. Or that if you're thinking of where to place the tefillin and the tefillin is supposed to represent having your mind and heart on something that you would want to place them in the location that is uh, the best fit for expressing that idea, we don't necessarily need um, complicated reasoning to arrive at that conclusion. So meaning now that you see this, you can read the text. When you see it says, take it with your yad, oh, it means the right hand. Or it says, do such and such, oh, it means during the day, because that would be the most natural time to do it. He's saying that's, that doesn't require as many assumptions. And, and again, the goal here, and he's going to make it even more explicit at the end when he talks about how he wanted to write two books, one book, which was a Pirush of Tasha which he did, where he shows how all the mitzvot emerge from, uh, I mean, he wrote a Pirush on the Torah where, you know, he'll show how all the principles of the mitzvot emerge from the, from the text of the Torah and can be integrated with it. He wanted to write an entire book first showing how, of, uh, of the mitzvot, where he showed the totality of all the mitzvot, what pasuk it came from and all the halachot that emerged from each pasuk, which would have been almost like a Mishneh Torah type of thing. And then he wanted to write a perush on the Talmud, where he showed how all the ideas in the Talmud emerged from ideas in the Torah Shebikhtav. He said, basically, it would have been the same thing in two different directions. One would have been the Torah Shebikhtav being the foundation of all the Torah Shebalpeh. One would have been the Torah Shebalpeh explained as a perush of Torah Shebikhtav. Unfortunately, he never got to write those uh, he never ended up writing them, but um, but from his plan that he explains, you see that the goal is for Toasha Balpeh and Toasha Bichtav to be integrated it naturally and seamlessly with one another. And the biggest that and the, you see that that is very much in the spirit of the Rambam, because what is the Rambam's first thing? Right? You should do the Torah Alpia Mitzvah. That's the foundation. And it was so critical. And, and many of the many of the issues that let's say the Karaim or the other uh, you know, people opposed to Tawash Balpeh 
raised, even going all the way back to the times of the Geonim and Sadia Geon and so on, they were based on the idea that Torah Shabalpeh is a totally independent body of knowledge that the Chachamim developed or created or invented or whatever. And that, oh, you're saying there's really two Torah instead of one. You're saying there's really, you know, uh, why doesn't it say in the Mishnah, if it's really uh, comes from Moshe Rabbein or whatever they would argue with, you know, with the Geonim. But these, that's all, in other words, when you learn properly from the Ralbag and the Rambam and so on, how the Torah Shabal Peh is supposed to be integrated with Torah Shabal you realize that all of those critiques of the Torah Shabal Peh are totally misguided because they're based on the idea that the Torah Shabal Peh is just more information and more content that was secretly, you know, kept separate from the Torah Shabal Whereas what these Chachamim are trying to show you is that the Torah Shabal Peh is just a proper reading of the Torah Shabal it's not a separate body of knowledge to be studied on its own, but it's the proper approach to reading and interpreting Torah Bichtav, and it has to be integrated with your reading of Torah Bichtav, not kept separate from it. That's the, that's the key. And whenever you're learning Torah Bichtav, whatever it be, whether it be Gemara, Mishnah, uh, Rambam, it should always be asking yourself, what part of the Pasuk, what in the Pasuk is this clarifying? How is this deepening my reading of the Pasuk? How is it refining my reading of the Pasuk uh, or of the Torah Shebikhtav? How can it deepen? Because that's how you further integrate the, the content rather than keeping it separate from one another. That's why they had a, a method. You first learn the Tanakh, Ben Chamesh Lemikra, right? And then you go, then you move to Torah Shabbat, to Mishnah, and eventually to Gemara, because it's all building on the, it's not just a, people think it's just a matter of order, like, oh, well, you should first do Torah Shabbat, because it's really important, you know, and the kids can't really understand Torah Shabbat, and then you move to, it's not just that. Or when the Rambam says a person should be Mishalesh Manli Mudo, the Masachet Kiddushin says a person should split their time in three Torah Shabbat, Torah Shabbat, and Gemara, right, where the Rambam calls Talmud, whatever. The point is, it's not because, oh, you, there are three different things you have to learn and how can you not, uh, how can you not learn uh, all three? No, it's because it's integrated. He's trying to show you that the Torah Shebikhtav, Torah Shebalpeh, they have to be integrated with one another. They're working together. And then he's, that's why he says in the end, the person will only have to read the Torah Shebikhtav and the Halachot once in a while and he'll focus on Gemara. Not because he's not learning Torah Shebikhtav and Torah Shebalpeh, but because he already has them integrated. He's just deepening the, the understanding of those areas with his reflection on them in the, what, what's called Talmud. But he's when Rabbi Akiva is talking about halacha, he's really talking about Torah Shebikhtav. When, when Rabbi Meir is talking about halachot, he's talking about Torah Shebikhtav ultimately. It's just that we don't see it because it because unfortunately, because the Torah Shebalpeh was written down, it became disconnected substantively from Torah Shebalpeh, um, from Torah Shebikhtav rather. And that's why so many of the Chachamim, of our Chachamim at least, tried so hard to reintegrate these uh, subject matters so that we learn them together. Okay, so it's a good, I mean, we did a lot, so I don't want to, it's already late for you guys, and I got to go do shacharit now. I have to, I have to go to Yerushalayim today, so I have a long day. Oh, your, uh, your six months is over. Yeah, it, uh, whoops, I meant to stop the recording, and I stopped that instead. Uh -huh.